This is Alan McCarthy, County Executive for Cecil County, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here today with a very special guest, Natasha Mayhew, MAKO's Legislative Director. Natasha, how are you today? Doing good. How are you? Doing very well. Thank you. Michael is still on assignment, we will say. He is at a conference. He will be back next week. So for all those looking for Michael and wondering where he is, I promise he will be back next week. Today on the podcast, we will discuss complete streets. We'll get an update on small cell towers. We'll discuss Maryland state-based health exchange. And finally, we will take a look at one of MAKO's 2019 legislative initiatives, reprioritizing public health. So, Natasha, let's talk a little bit about complete streets. So this week, the Baltimore City Council gave preliminary approval to a complete streets bill that really asked the city to prioritize road projects that focus on not only car traffic, but also pedestrian traffic, bike traffic, and really bringing the community together to get their insights on what they'd like to see in their communities. And really, this is just the latest effort that we've seen in Maryland and nationwide, local governments really trying to incorporate complete streets into their communities and rethinking street design and infrastructure. Okay, so this might be a little bit of a basic question, but what is a complete street? No, it's a really good question. So we know that traditionally roads have been designed for cars and trucks and maybe not so much for bikes and pedestrians. So Complete streets, the idea is to promote healthy communities by encouraging the use of multiple modes of transportation, such as bikes. You know, the streets will be designed to be safer for pedestrians and bikers. They'll be designed to help to protect the environment and improving water quality by using green stormwater infrastructure and reducing stormwater runoff. They'll reduce congestion. And then, of course, preserving community character by bringing together the community, involving, you know, everyone together, all the stakeholders in the planning, prioritization and design decisions. So this past session, MAKO supported and the General Assembly passed a bill to establish the Complete Streets program as a competitive matching grant program within the Maryland Department of Transportation. Okay, that sounds pretty comprehensive. I mean, it is significant because local governments own and maintain 83% of the roads in the state, making them the best catalyst for incorporating Complete Street principles into Maryland's transportation network. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, however, with the decimation of highway user revenues, which we've talked about on this program before, $3 billion diverted from local roads funding. And, you know, counties are struggling to accomplish meaningful and preventative maintenance on their roads, much less to dedicate resources to redesigning streets with all users in mind. So I think given this reality, it's going to take a significant dedication of funding, you know, to our local roads to transform the state's transportation network into a network that prioritizes pedestrians, cyclists, and transit passengers as highly as it prioritizes cars. You know, I live in Baltimore, and one of my favorite parts of living in the city is that once I come home from work in Annapolis, I could drop off my car and I don't really have to drive around anymore. Um, There's bike lanes. um, It's really cool to be able to walk places. And I think that's what a lot of millennials and other people want and where they live. Yeah, and I think we're seeing that trend not only here in Maryland, but across the country, certainly with the millennials and as more people continue to 
move into the city and other areas, we're going to see that continue to grow. Okay, so we know Baltimore City is moving forward with complete streets legislation, certainly not the only jurisdiction in Maryland interested here or that is taking action. If you do have any questions about the matching grant program, we'll put a link on the show notes to previous Conduit Street coverage. I think the biggest takeaway here is that this complete streets matching grant program keeps decisions local, and that's exactly where they should be. So Natasha, let's talk about small cell wireless. There is an update here. Again, we have talked about small cells on this podcast, and we will put a link to that episode in the episode notes for this program. First of all, give us a little bit of background. What are we talking about here for folks who maybe don't understand what exactly a small cell is and why it's important? So when we talk small cells, I think the easiest way to start is to say, um, you know, everyone's familiar with the big, large macro towers. These are the giant cell towers. And moving into the future, what a small cell is, is a micro tower. So equipment that is smaller than a macro tower, um, but small enough to fit on a light pole, um, bus stations, and other infrastructure. They enhance broadband service. So it doesn't expand service. They don't cover as big of a radius as the the old macro towers do. They cover um, much smaller footprint. So when you have one on a street light, you might need a couple on a block um, in order to provide coverage for the area. Right. So, so really what we're talking about here is these are designed to focus on small areas where there's probably a lot of cell phone traffic or people on their iPad accessing the internet. Right. I mean, um, I think it's safe to say almost everyone now um, watches videos on Netflix, streams on your computer, 5G, and and advancing the technology, autonomous vehicles mm-hmm. and other things. They all need to connect to broadband service. And so this enhances that in those narrow networks when we eventually get to having such 5G technology down the road. Okay, so we know that small cells are important to telecom providers to get to 5G technology. Why are small cells important to local governments? They are important to local governments because, again, the local governments really want their residents to have access to fast, high-speed, convenient services. And it is a benefit to be prepared to have those advanced technologies come to your communities. Mm-hmm. So we certainly care about having 5G technology when it comes down the line. Okay. And what did the FCC recently say? I know that they came out with some action on this issue. What the FCC did is they issued an order which severely restricts local government's authority over deploying those small cells within the local rights of way. Implements shorter shot clocks for permit approvals. So a shot clock means if I come to you with an application, that's the amount of time that you need to turn it around and say yes or no, right? Correct. Okay, so the FCC is saying you need to be faster with the turnaround time on these applications. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. They also put caps on your application fees and rental rates. The fees would be, you know, the permit fees for filing application, rental rates or your per year fees for access of the right away or to attach to poles in the right away. And then it also includes a three-part test on aesthetic requirements. Okay, so the FCC has taken action. They have issued a ruling. I know that we were involved last year in a statewide bill that was introduced Does this mean now that states are not going to worry about state bills anymore? Is the FCC just going to trump everything when it comes to state and local governments and legislation on that level? 
with the FCC order, it has not yet gone to effect. It was published in the Federal Register earlier this week, and um, it will go into effect in early January um, with an additional portion of it involving the design aesthetics being effective in April. So if that's the case, what are counties doing now to prepare for, for that going into effect and what can we do to work with the industry to come to some agreement while that federal action is looming over state and local governments? So it's almost like you could think of it as a lot of moving parts. So the mm-hmm. federal act- action is still looming. Um, certainly on the local level, counties and municipalities, um, a lot of them are moving forward. They've been working on local ordinances um, and agreements. They've certainly been working with industry to deploy small cells. Additionally, on a national level, you do have organizations seeking litigation against mm-hmm. the FCC order, ask for a stay, and they do believe it was an overreach on um, local authority. Again, planning and zoning is the heart of local government. Right, right. So litigation pending, this will not be resolved before the legislative session. So do we expect to see a statewide bill again here in Maryland? We've had some conversations with industry representatives. Those that have had introduced the bill last session do plan again to introduce a bill this session. So we've been talking with those stakeholders. We've been talking with our own members and are planning and strategizing for how to deal with all these moving <laughs> parts <laughs> with small cell next year in the in the General Assembly session. So ultimately, Natasha, where do you see this heading? Is the FCC going to be the end all Or are states going to address this issue patchwork like they have been doing as this issue has kind of moved across the country? What do you see here for the future of small cell wireless deployment in terms of local authority, local planning and zoning? I think you continue to see local governments um, implement their local ordinances. They're certainly keeping an eye out for what happens on the federal level should uh, litigation be successful, at least in staying the order. I mean, it, it could drag that out for much longer than the start of January. And of course, we'd still be keeping our eye out and focused on the legislative session and any statewide bill introduced in Maryland again. And I think across the nation, you'll you'll see similar things in that there are states with pending statewide bills and pending joining litigation and again, working on a local level. So I know that you and our partners at the Municipal League have been working with stakeholders, working with industry representatives, continuing to talk to them. And obviously for an issue with so many moving parts, that dialogue will continue to be critical. We're going to go ahead and take a break. After the break, we'll come back and talk about Maryland's state-based health insurance exchange. We'll also get into a 2019 MAKO legislative initiative, reprioritizing public health, all that and more after the break.
Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Natasha Mayhew. Natasha, let's get into state-based health insurance exchanges. So we know that Maryland is one of 12 states with its own state-based health insurance marketplace. Maryland is taking responsibility for the infrastructure, the website, the customer support for individuals and small businesses who want to purchase state-based plans. Now, just because we have a state exchange, Natasha, that doesn't mean that I can't go to my insurance company and buy health insurance, right? Right. So I can still go there, but I also have access to the state. The state is providing that infrastructure for me. Why, Natasha, is Maryland reaping the benefits? Why exactly is it good for the state to have its own exchange? What are the benefits? So initially, the state-based exchange, way back when the ACA was originally passed, was off to a little bit of a rocky start. Yeah, I remember there were some website issues, and it was a really rocky start. Right. But once everything came together and they got the platform moving, what it really did is it, it, it gives the state a lot of control. So when they make some changes on the federal level, whether it's um, cutting marketing or navigators and other tools that are really helpful for bringing people into the exchange market, because Maryland controlled the exchange um, platform and other things, that they were able to really um, do a lot more on a local level to ensure that people get enrolled. So we're really insulated from from federal changes because we operate our own exchange. Yeah. But additionally, Maryland's taken a lot of innovative steps to improve the insurance markets here. And so this past session, they've worked, it was a bipartisan bill, the governor and the General Assembly, in order for Maryland to apply for federal reinsurance. Okay, so what is reinsurance? So reinsurance is like insurance for insurance. And okay. so <laughs> so it's so it's in the name reinsurance. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But really what it is is because the easy way to say this is that the federal government ends up taking and paying for their your sickest most costly people in in your insurance pools. And that frees up then um, a bit more money on the local level, reduces premiums for everybody. So Maryland is one of um, seven states to take advantage of that to apply and be approved by the federal government for reinsurance. Okay, so are there any other benefits to reinsurance? Yeah, so what they're finding is that, at least in the estimates, that it will cause next year's individual insurance market premiums to drop anywhere from 7.4 to 17%. So that's pretty significant. Very significant drop. So reinsurance is certainly a benefit of Maryland running its own exchange. And we're insulated from federal changes that happen, you know, at the federal level. And of course, that's always a good thing. We've talked about the role of state and local government versus federal government and how federal inaction or action is causing state and local governments to act. So this seems like certainly an area where we've been able to protect ourselves from anything coming down from the federal government that could hurt our exchange and hurt our residents who are seeking to get good health insurance. Right. Okay, so Natasha, let's jump in now to a 2019 MAKO legislative initiative, Reprioritizing Public Health. And Natasha, I know that you have a very clever title here, Prescription for Action. Talk about that and what we're seeking to do here. Right. So what we want to do with this initiative is to really put the focus back on 
the public health services of the local health departments um, and also the opioid crisis that we're dealing with, which really ties in because our health departments really do so much to protect and promote the health of Maryland's residents. Yeah, I mean, we know local health departments are on the front line for public health services and for education, right? Right, exactly. And um, if we talk about the local health department portion for a bit, around the recession, local health department core funding um, was significantly cut. Um, as were a lot of other programs um, in the state while we were in a recession. Um, however, their funding has never been completely restored. So um, back in, say, 2008, they had reached a funding high of almost $7 million. Um, do you know where they're at now? Yeah, I can take a guess that it's significantly lower. Yes, <laughs> it's it's lower than the seventy million dollars it was back in two thousand eight. Right now, they're at about fifty three million dollars. So big cut, and they're having obviously to do a lot more with a lot fewer resources as they deal with not only the opioid epidemic but other public health issues as well. Right, and that's everything from um, behavioral health, so your mental health services, infectious disease maternal and child health, um, clinical services. A couple of years ago, we had the Zika issue. Right, right. Infectious diseases like that come up all the time. And, you know, it's it's really just comes down to it being um, uh, the heart of public health services to make sure that they're able to react to these sorts of things that would pop up and some of these chronic crises like the opioid crisis that we're in. Okay, so we know about the opioid crisis. We've talked a little bit about some of the other, uh, I don't want to say issues, but some of the other elements that our local health departments deal with on a daily basis, as well as, again, providing education to the general public, reaching out, making sure people understand where the risks are and how to mitigate those risks. What exactly here, when we say reprioritizing public health, does that just mean restore the funding to what it was back in 2008? We certainly want uh, funding to be restored, um, but we also want to ensure that they're able to help when it comes to this opioid epidemic. And when I when I say, you know, we're really looking for a prescription for action, mm -hmm. it's that we're trying to target things on multiple fronts. So in addition to increasing the funding, it's making sure that we have enough um, treatment beds. And when we talk about treatment beds, reaching those hard-to-reach groups, mm -hmm. so whether it's um, – uh, families where a mother might have a kid and needs to get treatment. Where are we going to find a bed for that? Or areas in which the treatment beds are just completely lacking because there's just not enough services in those jurisdictions. And maybe rural areas where, you know, we just don't have enough beds and where you don't have a lot of people living there necessarily. But when you need beds in that, that part of the state, it's hard to get somebody across the state you know, without really disrupting their lives and the lives of their family and, you know, whoever has to drive them or take them. That's significant. So we'd like to have beds available across the state in all communities. Right, exactly. And then, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about medication-assisted treatment and to the extent that treatment is needed, whether it's behind the bars or in the community, and there are barriers to people getting that treatment. I think if I throw out some names, people might be familiar, but some of the medication-assisted treatment could be methadone, mm -hmm. suboxone, um, Divitrol, um, and, you know, trying to 
make sure there's access there for people. So really when we're talking about a prescription for um, action, we're trying to look at it from multiple different angles and really try to have all those angles targeted in at getting something achieved. So how about naloxone, Narcan? We know we do trainings at our conferences on how to use naloxone, Narcan. That is an opioid antidote, correct? So if somebody is overdosing, you know, you have this Narcan and you can use it to bring them back essentially and wait for help to arrive. How are we doing with Narcan, naloxone? Have we seen a rise in the amount of Narcan and naloxone that counties have on hand and that are able to get out into the community and and engage with folks and make sure they have this valuable tool? Yeah, I think that's been one of the programs that has been very successful in the extent that expanding access to naloxone has gotten into the hands of um, people in the communities. As you mentioned, the local health departments do trainings on that. Also, uh, the first responders, so police having it, family members of people overdosing. I think Really what ends up being an issue with the opioid crisis is that it's just frustrating overall because the crisis um, keeps transforming in a way. So while it is really great that we have naloxone and naloxone helps save people from overdosing, we're just still seeing that there's um, more potent opioids out there, fentanyl. And so you're constantly trying to find other ways to stem the epidemic. So that's certainly one piece that's been great and been a help. But we need to continue to just um, try to stay ahead of the curve as the crisis keeps transforming and find other ways to tackle it. Yeah, I mean, we've seen carfentanil, fentanyl coming into the state, and this is a very powerful and potent drug that, you know, is added to heroin or opioids and people can't handle it, right? So that's obviously a big problem. I guess we should mention, too, that the state has stepped up. The state is working hard. You know, we have a command center that is operated by Clay Stamp, who's from Talbot County Emergency Manager, on loan to the state to help deal with this crisis. But the state is stepping up. The state is working hard and working with counties to try and curb this epidemic. Right, right. And they've also, they've applied for funding from the federal government. Um, I believe the first couple million has already come down, um, 40 or so million there. And with more to come, I mean, certainly they've been um, proactive in advocating on a federal level for more money. And there was passage of a um, bipartisan congressional bill to help um, provide more assistance, not just funding, but um, on a federal level for addressing the opioid crisis. And so we really hope that trickles down (laughs) from the feds to the state to the locals that we can all work to um, stem the epidemic. So from what you've seen, are our health departments really overwhelmed with just the opioid epidemic? Is it hard for them to deal with all these other issues that are out there because the opioid epidemic takes up so much time and resources? Is, Is this a reason why we need to restore this funding, not just for the opioid epidemic, but for everything else that health departments do on a daily basis? Yeah, I would say that they do so much. We don't want to limit it to just their opioid response. But really, even when it comes down to doing beach and pool inspections and food safety inspections and helping seniors with disabilities or health in the schools, I mean, really, the local health departments are the boots in the ground for public health services. And so, yes, we do have an opioid crisis, but we also have a 
number of issues that need to be addressed. And the health departments are working with less resources now than they were over 10 years ago. So certainly the funding hasn't kept up with the needs. Excellent. So MAKO is going to have this initiative to reprioritize public health, restore that funding, make sure that local health departments have associated treatment services, beds, facilities, and providers that are available to meet our residents' need on demand. Right. Exactly. Okay, that'll do it for this episode of the Conduit Street Podcast. Natasha, thank you for joining us. Always a pleasure having you on. Looking ahead, next Tuesday, October 23rd, the Commission to Advance Next Generation 911 in Maryland, a 2018 MAKO legislative initiative, will hold their second meeting. The group has broken into subcommittees. Those subcommittees will be reporting back to the full commission on Tuesday. So look for some follow-up there on the next episode. Also, the Commission on Innovation and Excellence in Education, also known as the Kerwin Commission, will hold a meeting on October 31st. We've talked extensively about the Kerwin Commission on this podcast. Their final report is due to the General Assembly in December, so they are well on their way to wrapping up their recommendations. Stay tuned for an update on that as well. And as always, if you enjoy the podcast, we appreciate you subscribing, liking, sharing with a friend. It really helps to get our message out there. For Natasha Mayhew, this is Kevin Canale signing off. We will talk to you soon.